Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. I hope you all had a wonderful 420, and I hope you were able to take advantage of our special 420 pricing on CanMed 2021 tickets. If you did not, you're in luck. I managed to pull some strings and get that deadline extended an additional day exclusively for podcast listeners. So if you use promo code 420 sale, all one word at checkout, you can receive discounted pricing on full conference, medical practicum, full conference with medical practicum and expo only tickets. That discount, by the way, is 50% off. So again, that promo code is 420SALE, all one word, and the offer expires at the stroke of midnight tonight, 422. While you're at canmedevents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts to stay up to date with all the news surrounding this industry-leading event. The best place to do that is on our podcast page, which you can find in the main menu under the Media tab. You can also go there directly by going to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk. There's a sign up form on that page. And if you complete it, you will be entered into a drawing to win two CanMed 2021 VIP dinner tickets. While you're there, you can also listen to all the CanMed coffee talk podcast episodes in our archive. Okay. On this episode, we welcome Dr. Deborah Kimless. She is the CMO at Pure Green Pharmaceuticals where she oversees clinical medical testing, patient and physician educational programs, and medical product development. Deb and her team recently published an open-label clinical trial for treating diabetic neuropathic pain with a water-soluble CBD tablet. In our conversation, we discuss results from that clinical trial, what makes diabetic neuropathic pain a good candidate for cannabinoid therapies, comparing the adverse effects of standard DNP treatments to CBD, the advantages of delivering cannabinoids via a water-soluble tablet, why there are not more clinical trials into into cannabinoid therapies, and tools consumers can use to identify proper clinical trials. Before we get to that conversation, I would like to thank this episode's sponsor, Pure Green Pharmaceuticals. Pure Green Pharmaceuticals manufactures the finest medical products using selected cannabinoid molecules as primary ingredients. Their goal is to relieve human and animal suffering through use of purified cannabis. Learn more at pgpharma.co. And lastly, our friends at the Hemp and Coffee Exchange are creating some great coffee. If you didn't know, Hemp coffee is healthy, delicious, and a natural product rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, please check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Deborah Kimless.
Good afternoon, Deb. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And it's always it's great to catch up with you. Um, I see you a lot out on the conference circuit, you being a, a frequent presenter and a very good one, a former CanMed presenter. Um, but obviously, given the circumstances, um, we haven't been out there on the circuit. So I wanted to maybe ask you, how has not going to conferences and kind of being out there kind of helped you, I don't know, maybe refocus or, or concentrate more on other work? Yeah, so this whole COVID pandemic shutdown thing has been uh, kind of a double-edged sword. You know, the good part about not having to travel outside of your home is that you have a lot of time to um, dedicate to doing all kinds of different projects and no excuses for not doing them. And then the the, the bad part is, is one, you, you miss that collaboration, that face-to-face time with, with people where, you know, a certain you know, a a simple hello could lead down a path of a great idea. And so the challenge is trying to recreate that in creative ways, you know, so I think the, the internet was a positive regarding that, you know, these podcasts are great, but I think when it comes to -to face-to-face time with people, I think, you know, as humans, we're, we're meant to be social creatures and, and it's, you know, that part's been kind of challenging. Um, I did get a lot of work done though, staying home. Um, uh, and, and the challenge with that also is when to shut down because, you know, your workspace and your home space become sort of, uh, and uh, one, you know, an amorphous one. Yeah. You definitely need to keep that balance and you make a great point about sort of the, the collaboration and, and being in person with people and, and thankfully, it, it seems like there's more in-person events being announced. And of course, we're planning to hold CanMed this fall out there in Pasadena. So, you know, fingers crossed, everything keeps trending in the right direction. And um, we'll get to talk to each other in person pretty soon. But, but until then, we get to talk uh, on the podcast here. And I'm excited to talk with you about a, a new clinical trial uh, that you guys just published about where you were looking into treating diabetic neuro- neuropathic pain with CBD, which is is really interesting. So um, let's dive into it. And maybe the best place to start is to kind of let's talk about what exactly is diabet- diabetic peripheral neuropathy and why did you think that would be a good target for cannabinoid therapies? So yeah, this was an incredible opportunity to, to do this study. Um, we chose diabetic peripheral neuropathy because it's kind of a nerve damage caused by diabetes, elevated, chronic elevation of of blood sugar. And um, it's quite debilitating. It leads to numbness, loss of sensation, pain. And usually they call this a stocking glove distribution. So it's in their people's feet and and legs and hands. Um, And sadly, it's the most common complication of diabetes and affects upwards of 50% of patients. And why did, yeah, I know it's crazy. And why do we think it was a great target uh, or potential target to, to explore is because there's a lot of basic science research, you know, super smart people are, are creating these animal models um, to look at different types of pain. And they, there was a basic science research that shows 
um, in a glycine-induced neuropathic pain model that CBD seemed to have had a reduction in pain in this model. Um, Sarah Jane Ward at a Temple University, um, my mentor and somebody I admire hugely, looked at CBD to prevent or reduce um, paclitaxel-induced peripheral neuropathic pain, so from chemotherapy. And so diabetes, because it's rampant and widespread um, and is so debilitating with, with, with this painful thing, we thought this would be a, an interesting um, target for CBD. Oh, excellent. So it seems like there was already some, some groundwork laid um, through others who had kind of been investigating this um, at a more um, uh, plant model level. Does that have that right? Not plant. I'm sorry. Animal, animal and, model. Yeah, I like plants, but yes, definitely the, <laughs> definitely at the at the animal, you know, benchtop model. And there's also a lot of what people like to sort of turn their nose at, but anecdotal anecdotal evidence clinically where people seem to respond to cannabinoids broadly in CBD specifically. So we thought that we would take a look at it. Great. And so what are some of the common medications used to treat uh, DPN? And, you know, what are their side effects? Is, is that another reason that can, uh, cannabinoids might be a good candidate here? Right. So some of the, well, the, 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 the main treatment is to try to get some tight control um, with blood sugar to try to prevent it. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's a challenge, especially if people don't eat right and don't understand what the mechanisms are of why they have diabetes and how to prevent, therefore, those spikes of blood sugar and uh, the chronicity of it. And, and so the only two FDA-approved uh, drugs are Lyrica, or pregabalin, and Cymbalta, otherwise known as Duloxetine. And... Um, they're, they're tough drugs to take. I mean, they, and they have a ton of side effects. It can, something is, you know, minor until it affects you is dizziness and nausea and extreme fatigue. You can have weight gain. You can have amnesia. It can affect your platelets. It can cause heart failure. So we're getting into some, you know, uh, more serious of these side effects. Um, mm. Seizures. And these also carry a black box warning of, of, um, suicide and suicidal ideation. And wow. so, yeah, I mean, you always, as a physician, want to balance efficacy of a drug with side effects, right? Because what good is it if something works, if at the end of the day, it makes you kill yourself? Right. You know, and as we in, in the cannabinoid or endocannabinoid industry have come to learn is that for the most part, when taken prudently, cannabinoids don't, you know, have serious adverse effects or events. Certainly, certainly. Um, and so one thing that you mentioned there about sort of what causes this pain, I just wanted to make sure that I understood that correctly, is, is it something that's caused by, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like poor management of diet or, or blood sugar? Is this something that can be prevented if, if, if folks are, are managing things properly? You know, it depends, I guess, on what that management looks like, right? So if you are someone who eats garbage and, and 
just takes a pill mm. to, to sort of counteract that. I think that the glycosylation of these nerves is which what's happening that leads to this damage of the nerve of these peripheral nerves um, will continue. And I've read studies that even slightly elevated, but chronic slight elevation of blood sugar can also lead to these um, neuropathic pain issues. Hmm. So really it's, it's gotta be looked at in a more holistic way where you take charge of what, what you eat. And so when I take care of patients who are tired of, of having diabetes and taking medication, I transition them to a whole food, all plant, no added oil, no processed food diet to help manage their diabetes. And the majority of, of my type two diabetics, um, are able to reduce or, or replace all of their medicines just by diet alone. Wow. And that's because they're not spiking their blood sugar and sort of creating this nerve damage. Exactly. And, and it's weird because, you know, when in medical school, we're taught about diabetes being a problem with blood sugar, that's sort of like a, um, an end result, but really the primary result is diabetes is because fat blocks insulin's ability to take sugar that we need to have for function and energy. Our brain functions on glucose. It's not like you don't need glucose. You just need it in a wholesome way, not in a refined sugar kind of way. But the real cause of diabetes for people who are predisposed to, to having this is, is that fat inside a cell blocks insulin's ability to bring sugar in for metabolism. Hmm. I know, right? And so because of that, then you see a blood, a blood sugar spike in your blood because it's in your blood and not in the cells where it belongs. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. So now that we've sort of set the table there, so what were the results um, of your study? Incredible. <laughs> I mean, and, and excellent. Yeah. It, I mean, so, so we had 31 subjects with, um, diabetes. This was an open label, meaning I knew that they had the drug, that they were getting CBD. They knew that they were getting CBD. And, um, we had them use a smartphone app. We designed a series of questions looking at a whole bunch of different endpoints. Um, one is of course, safety, you know, to make sure that, that this preparation was safe with no adverse events. Um, and then the second is efficacy. You know, what was a pain scale score? Did it go down? And was it statistically significant? And the answer was yes. It was statistically significant. And because this was an, an open label, I didn't have anyone get off their Lyrica or Cymbalta or any of the off-label medications that are often used or prescribed for, for this treatment of uh, diabetic neuropathic pain. Because if they're, they qualify with a pain scale score, an NPR score from zero to 10 of a five or greater, then they made the grade and they can be on it, you know, in spite of the fact that they were still taking these meds. So we had, you know, more subjects on these pain meds still with an average pain scale score of, of close to seven mm. on medication. And we even compared it with their, with, with, with patients 
who weren't on these medicines with their average pain scale score close to seven. And they both statistically significantly dropped by almost half. Yeah, that's that's pretty remarkable. It, um, it's huge. It's it's huge. And and when you look at MPRS score um, and something like diabetic neuropathic pain, there's something called what is um, minimally clinically significant. So what makes patients say that was worth my while? Hmm. And generally speaking, they you know an NPRS of a, a, a reduction of two points is clinically significant for patients. And we were down by three as an average. Right. And that, I was going to ask you about that because when I was reading through the, the, um, the study there, um, the results were presented as an average. Um, were there any uh, participants who had a reduction of pain so much that it was zero or is that yeah yeah three that, that's that's incredible it's it's inc that's what i'm saying like these results were incredible absolutely um incredible and and the results were um robust enough for us to say what if we do this again but we do it with a placebo control, double right. blind, randomized trial. And so that's what we did. And literally last week, we just closed out 51 subjects, double blind, randomized trial, placebo controlled. And now it's the data sets are with uh, statisticians. So now we wait. Okay. So no, <laughs> no indication or, or any idea of if, how the data looks or. Yeah. So there is an indication for a statistically significant reduction in pain. And we took people off their pain meds. Wow. Well, that's, that's yeah. certainly significant. Oh, and I want to, oh, go ahead, please. The smart people, the smart statisticians to get their hands on it. So this is a you know, another story for another podcast, hopefully, and another manuscript. But um, there are, you know, there are um, some indications that show similar type of results. Yeah, that's, that's certainly remarkable. And another thing that I read um, in the study is that I think, and if I read it correctly, you can certainly tell me um, that some of the participants actually wanted to stop using their medications. Um, but I think um, you advise them not to just because um, under the terms of the study, like you said, you wanted to keep them, um, you know, consistent or keep them on the medications consistently, um, which certainly makes sense. But I was curious that now with that study over, do you know, how, did any of those participants actually stop using their medications? So good question, because we're a clinical trials company per se, there's no, they're not patients of ours, mm -hmm. you know, so there, we don't follow up beyond, you know, what our, our protocol is. So I don't know that, but I would imagine if I were one of those patients, I certainly would, would replace my um, medications or augment my med medications with CBD.
after the yeah. result of this. Yeah, if if for no other reason than uh, what we touched on before, that you know some of those side effects from those other medications are pretty significant. And um, conversely, I read also in your study that none of the participants rep reported any adverse, re uh, excuse me, reported any adverse events from the CBD, which I have to think that um, that's very uncommon in a clinical trial. Is that fair to say? It is very fair to say. I mean, <laughs> generally speaking, you know, it's, it's fair to say, you know, for anything that people always have some sort of an issue with something. Um, so yes, it was very rare. And again, that's why, you know, this was a really informative trial, albeit an open label. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why we wanted to see what would happen. What if we did this again, you know, everybody blinded and placebo controlled. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of just going back to the whole idea of there being no adverse events, um, you know, it's sort of something that comes up a lot when I talk with, with physicians or, or uh, clinicians in general is that, you know, that's one of the great things about, about CBD or cannabinoid therapies is that really the adverse events, the likelihood of an adverse event is very low. Not that it's, not that it's zero, but it is so low that, um, it's often a good idea to at least try it. And, you know, and if it doesn't work for you, then kind of no harm, no foul. But um, that's one thing about cannabinoid therapies that's um, pretty remarkable. Absolutely. I call it like the therapeutic order of operations, right? So first, you know, change your diet and lifestyle. Take mm -hmm. away all the things that are adversely impacting your, your health. And then if you still have a condition, start adding on things with the least amount of side effects. So I'm not saying that pharmaceuticals are terrible, but I'm saying that there are other things, including cannabinoids, that should be tried first before we get to something, because you want to have something that's effective with the least amount of side effects. Right. Right. Yeah. So with that, I'd sort of, I'm curious to talk with you about sort of the medicine itself um, that you were using to treat these patients. Um, and if I understand correctly, the CBD treatment you studied was actually in a tablet form, which kind of struck me as rather rare for cannabis treatments. Is that true? Well, I mean, there's oral ingestibles of, of all sorts, right? So right. Um, the owner of the company, PG Pharma, had the idea that he wanted to create a administration form that doctors would be comfortable with and familiar with, patients would be comfortable with and familiar with, that it would be an ease of use, they would be able to titrate it, you know, up or down depending upon the the effects of the of the of the medicine on the indication. And so it's it's rare that it's a water solubilized iteration of CBD. It goes under your tongue, it rapidly dissolves. And so, you know, lots and lots of people use a sublingual version that's oil-based and dropper-based. Right. And so 
this was formulated in a tablet form to to look familiar and fee, feel familiar and and look like real medicine that it is. Right. No, it was something that came up when I was talking with uh, Dr. Peter Grinspoon on um, an earlier podcast. He was pretty adamant that you know if we want cannabis to be treated like a medicine, it should look like a medicine. Um, you know, to be sort of treating conditions with with gummy bears or, or things like that, it just doesn't it doesn't fit. So I think moving more towards a, a traditional look would certainly help, at least. Um, with adoption from folks who are maybe not as comfortable with cannabis. Absolutely. You know, I always say I don't like to vilify any cannabinoid, nor do I want to vilify any administration form, for sure. sure. But I can assure you that as a physician, I've never written a prescription for a brownie. Right. <laughs> However, if that's the only way someone with horrific anxiety you know, will take a cannabinoid and that cannabinoid seems to work for that anxiety. I'm just using it as an example. Then gosh, why not? You know, but there are a subset of people who look at cannabis and think of it as, you know, um, something that, you know, stoners use and they think it's only about smoking and there's no way they would ever use this. You know, without remembering that this was in the U.S. pharmacopoeia up until the early 1940s. And my grandfather, a pharmacist, probably, you know, had alcohol extractions and, uh, you know, tinctures of of cannabinoids on his shelf that he gave people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everyone, I I think the beauty of, of this industry is that there's something for everyone. You know, if somebody's... Um, inclination is to say, I want to get closest to the plan as possible and feels that vaporizing or inhalation of some sort is, is the way to go then. And it works fine. You know, if somebody wants to say, I'm not really excited about that method of administration, these sublingual tablets make the most sense to me. I, I I'm, I'm, we're right there for them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, we want to, um, we want to make this as accessible as possible to as many different people as possible. Right. Well, I I think that's what we want for the medical industry. Right. I think it, it makes sense. And again, just based on the safety profile and the, and, you know, and, and potential efficacy. Absolutely. So more about, um, this tablet and what you used in the study, um, I understand it was, it was CBD, but I was curious, were there any other cannabinoids or terpenoids sort of in that formulation or was it just CBD only? So it is a proprietary blend. So I I can't disclose, but it it had curated terpenes and, uh, some secret sauce (laughs) and, uh, CBD. Excellent. Excellent. So, I mean, I guess the obligatory question about the entourage effect. So I, I take it that if, you, if there are other cannabinoids and terpenoids in there, then um, it's certainly playing a role, at least um, in the benefits here. So I think we, we can all agree about the synergistic effects, you know, reign supreme, even in traditional medicine, you know, as an anesthesiologist, 
we would use a bunch of different medications to um, induce somebody, in, you know, for general anesthesia, as opposed to one medicine and just use a whole lot of it again to reduce side effects of one medication. So synergistic effects of of different molecules make a lot of sense and have always made a lot of sense. Um, oh. I kind of. Sh- struggle with if you have an oral ingestible, you know, what happens in the stomach when, you know, it's a pH of less than two and, um, hydrochloric acid is there and then it goes through the digestive process. And I think about, you know, we eat a lot of terpenes all day long in Mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices. I, I, I don't know if in that method of administration, if it matters as much as it would with inhalation, like aromatherapy, right? or a sublingual where you, where you, it is potentially absorbed into the systemic circulation, bypassing that, that GI tract in that, you know, metabolism piece. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. It hadn't really struck me until you, you mentioned it, that um, you're right. We we are ingesting all different types of foods that have different terpenes and different compounds in them. And if we are, if we all agree that there is an entourage effect going on here, how could you know eating an edible after you eat a cheeseburger different than be different than if you ate it after you had a salad? Um, something I had never considered before. Um, or augmented better with a salad. Well, let's just say the salad had some kind of olive oil on it, so people aren't saying, you know, to themselves listening to this podcast, oh, well, it's the fat content of the cheeseburger. And by the way, disclosure, I'm not advising a cheeseburger, but (laughs) it's the fat content of the cheeseburger that allows for better absorption of the terpenes and cannabinoids. Um, but, But still, I think we can agree that, you know, cannabis is a very efficient manufacturer of terpenes. Mm. And other plant sources have a greater amount. And yet, you know, I, I, I just don't know. You know, this is something that keeps me up at night. And someday I would love to run, you know, a clinical trial. Somebody wants to fund me doing this, you know, looking exactly at this question. Yeah, we just don't know. It's something I hear a lot talking to folks in this field, which um, is always exciting. And, um, you know, if, if nothing else, it's job security, right? We still have a lot to learn. <laughs> um, and on the and on the topic of clinical trials, you know, it, another thing that always comes up when I talk with people about cannabis and cannabis medicine is, you know, we need more clinical trials. There's not enough clinical trials. Um, so now you've completed one here, and you have another double-blind study in the works. Um, why do you feel like there aren't more clinical trials being done now? So. One, they're difficult. They're expensive. You have to be clever enough to work around the legal and regulatory landscape in using a federally illegal substance, Mm. you know, and then there's COVID, right? So, um, (laughs) you know, add that to the mix. And, and I would also have to, I mean, expensive probably should have been number one more than difficult. I mean, because there's always ways and of figuring stuff out. If I did it, you know, I'm sure other people can too, but, but it's expensive. And if you think about it, 
you know, for the most part, universities don't want to touch it because of federal funding and they're, they're nervous about it. And anytime you onboard a university, generally speaking, it becomes very cumbersome and a lot of red tape. Um, and businesses who are, you know, cultivating, processing and selling on a, on a retail sales landscape are busy doing that. And it's hard to monetize a clinical trial. I mean, pure green pharmaceuticals in the midst of, of uh, trying to fundraise to be able to take these, this, these pieces of information that we're getting to the FDA to get an IND to make, make a true pharmaceutical, you know, no, no differently than GW Pharma. And, you know, it's, it's hard. People generally don't put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, no, it's an, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's encouraging at least that, that you're managing to, to get it done and we are seeing more, more come around. Um, so hopefully that's a, that's a trend that continues. Right. Um, it's, it's not just me. It's, you know, PG right. Pharma is, um, was self-funded by the CEO for a long time. And then through connections in the largesse of a, an investment company out of Pennsylvania, go figure, um, who believed in, you know, making real medicine. Right. And now in terms of clinical trials, like, are there, are there certain standards that must be met to kind of perform like a quote unquote proper clinical trial in terms of sample size, selection criteria, time period, or things like that? I ask because, um, I mean, unfortunately in this space, and I imagine in any space, there's sort of, there's pseudoscience, there's, you know, um, maybe some less scrupulous studies that are out there that folks might tout as being a, a quote unquote clinical trial, but maybe aren't um, uh, as robust as, as, uh, as a proper one. And I wonder if so, are there some sort of like red flags that consumers might be able to kind of look for if, if there are folks claiming to have performed a clinical trial? So. For sure, there is, I like the term proper, proper clinical trial. Absolutely. And there are rules that govern and standards that govern what a clinical trial is. I mean, people go to school for years and years. I studied, passed an exam, and I'm actually a certified principal investigator as well as my other um, my other initials. So I have CPI going for me. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard. So, yes, sample size is calculated, it's called power through smart statisticians looking at what the endpoints are and what the, what, what kinds of results you want to see. Um, and, and you need to have this gone through like an uh, investigators review board to make sure that it's ethical and that somebody independent is sort of overseeing what the, what the protocol is that there's informed consents to make sure that subjects are protected, their rights are protected, their health in the event of an adverse event, or even just publishing any of this stuff. You know, so there's a site called clinicaltrials.gov. It's, it's um, actually overseen by the NIH, National, National Institute of Health. So all mm -hmm. of our tax dollars are paying for this, that true robust clinical trials have to list on that site 
and it's not easy to do. It is probably one of the harder things I've done. And I've studied for board certifications for many, many different medical um, specialties. And, and it's really challenging to do this, but every one of our trials is listed, is IRB approved and listed on clinicaltrials.gov. And you can see those trials. You can Google it, Google, you know, my last name, and you can see a list of, of trials that, you know, we've got IRB approval for, and we're just waiting for funding or we've completed, or we're in the midst of recruiting. So you can see all that. And that would be something that um, patients, if they're interested in looking at, can also see. But most of these manufacturers are not doing these things. And most of these publications are not in a peer review medical journal. Mm. You know, so it's kind of like a buyer beware as well. And not to suggest that the information that manufacturers garner from patients that use their products is not valuable certainly is, but there's a difference between, you know, a patient survey and, you know, a real robust clinical trial. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that clinicaltrials.gov, that's, that's a great resource. Um, to certainly, um, maybe vet some of these, these things or some of these claims, or, or maybe just to, to keep an eye on what clinical trials are being done in the space. So uh, I'll definitely provide a link to that in the show notes so that people can, uh, can check that out. Um, all right. So I guess wrapping up here, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to plug any, um, any websites, any social media, anything that you would like to, um, to let people know about so they can maybe learn more about the work you're doing or maybe connect with you. Um, the floor is yours. Sure. So thank you. So absolutely go on to pgpharma.co, especially if you're an investor in this space that, that is excited about creating, you know, FDA approved pharmaceuticals. Because again, like we, you know, with a, a shout out to what we said before, some people would only take what they consider to be the gold standard of medicine, which is, you know, found in a pharmacy, FDA approved with a thumbs up. And that's what we're trying to create. So pgpharma.co has, has all the links to, you know, Instagram or whatever, and you can go on to clinicaltrials.gov and see what we're doing. And then our journal article is a journal of, of diabetes and metabolism where you can read the full journal. Excellent. Yep. And again, I will provide links to each of those resources in the notes. So it's just easy for people to, um, to check that out. All right. Well, Deb, thanks again for, for joining us here on the podcast. And I do hope I get to see you in person later this year. Oh, I do too. And Ben, thank you for inviting me. This was great. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Deborah Kimless. You can read more about the topics we discussed using the links in the show description. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Pure Green Pharmaceuticals. 
Our next episode will drop May 5th. In the meantime, please do check out canmedevents.com for all the latest news surrounding CanMed 2021. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for email alerts. The best place to do that is on our podcast webpage. That's at canmedevents.com slash coffee talk. If you complete the form on that page, you will be entered to win two tickets to our VIP dinner for CanMed 2021. If social media is more your thing, you can keep up with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you are listening on a podcast app, please do subscribe to our feed and also leave us a five-star review. Okay, until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.